Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Hip-hop first made its appearance on the scene in the 1970s when black and brown kids in New York, in the Bronx specifically, began spitting lyrics to popular songs. One of the first commercial rap successes was the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, which was released in 1979. Those of us of a certain age remember well when that song was dropped and can still repeat the lyrics upon hearing the opening refrain. While Rapper's Delight was an upbeat rap designed to get audience dancing, hip-hop rap quickly became a vehicle for black urban youth to express anger and frustration with the political, social, and economic realities of their circumstances. Tracks like Public Enemies, Don't Believe the Hype, and Fight the Power became anthems for kids of color who felt like there were musical artists who talked about what they were experiencing and feeling. According to Forbes, hip-hop is the most consumed genre in America, and the demand is reflected in high record sales here in the United States and worldwide. And hip-hop's popularity continues to grow. For example, for the first time in history, a rap song won Record of the Year during this year's Grammy Awards, with the award going to Childish Gambino's rap song, This Is America. Hip-hop has influenced American politics and culture and has also been influenced by the American legal system. On today's show, we're going to talk about the law through the lens of hip-hop. And joining us for this discussion is our colleague, Professor Todd Clark, who teaches with us at North Carolina Central University School of Law. Professor Clark teaches contracts, a corporate justice class, and he also teaches a class on hip-hop and the law. Professor Clark, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with you guys today, and I'm really excited about it. All right. All right. So to set the stage, Irv, I'm going to pass it over to you. So um, you were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. Can you talk a little bit about what the nature was of the civil rights movement in the the 60s, particularly like the late 60s? Well, the uh, late 60s were punctuated by the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, in 1968, uh, which uh, brought a wide level of anger uh, into African-American and Latino uh, communities. Uh, And in many respects, uh, uh, residents in uh, these uh, communities uh, became more militant and anti-government with the view that if uh, you assassinate a moderate and uh, uh, even keel person like uh, Martin Luther King, then what would you do to the, uh, to the rest of us? Uh, and it was also uh, a, t- a time that there were a lot of uh, visible protests against the uh, police uh, and uh, efforts uh, designed to uh, counter 
uh, police uh, misconduct in local communities. You just had a couple of years ago the urban riots uh, that uh, had occurred, uh, 65, 66, and then certainly after uh, 1968. But I think interestingly in, in terms of, of, of this topic, was the uh, development of this notion within uh, uh, the African-American activist community of this notion of cultural nationalism. And cultural nationalism as uh, led in large part by Amiri Baraka or Leroy Jones uh, out of uh, Newark. Uh, and uh, poets or activist poets then began to use uh, their skills to uh, uh, talk about uh, what was happening to African-American people. Uh, Amiri Baraka uh, had the Spirit House, play, uh, Spirit House uh, Theater uh, in uh, Newark, and they would put on these skits and plays, and, and that got picked up uh, around the uh, country as people uh, under the cultural nationalism notion began to bring this uh, entertainment portion as well as education portion into uh, the uh, in, into the movement, and then there was the uh, group called the Last Poets uh, that uh, developed out of uh, uh, Harlem, uh, Galen Kane and uh, Abi Odun, Adimola, and others uh, who uh, began to have uh, regular theatrical performances uh, where they would do uh, their uh, poetry. And so out of this movement then came the likes of uh, Curtis Blow uh, and others who uh, then took up that mantle. But they uh, created this cadence uh, uh, that was uh, associated with the, the lyrics uh, that they were able to uh, uh, develop. And then that moved and started a new movement within uh, the community where you not only had uh, political education, but you also had cultural education about what was going on in the community. And it was set to music, to rhythm, uh, to uh, uh, cadences, you know, that, uh, that people use. And I think, you know, going back to that late 1960s, period, that's what was going on within uh, the movement uh, itself. So when you walled over into 1970s and, and up, uh, then uh, the larger African-American community began to take that up and then use that as an art form uh, mm -hmm. then and created a whole new genre of, uh, of music just around that. And then it was something that was free. Uh, you use your own creativity. You didn't have to be able to sing. You didn't have to know anything about the beat, except you had to find it uh, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, project it. And uh, so everybody could do that or found a way to do that, kind of like the uh, doo-wop uh, guys back in the 50s, late 50s and, and 60s as they stood on the street corner uh, harmonizing uh, behind the uh, Motown uh, sound and, and, and others uh, in the uh, community, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers mm -hmm. and that group. So, you know, so this is just kind of uh, an evolution of uh, that kind of uh, street creed, that street creativity that picked up on this cultural nationalism and the poets from the uh, cultural nationalist uh, uh, movement. But it was all in sync with what the political uh, position were, were positions that were taken within the uh, community and set to a form that made it more manageable and uh, acceptable uh, in the uh, larger community.
Okay. All right. So, Todd, given that context, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the development of of hip hop? So, you know, the one that's just such a wonderful um, context. And I wanted to even just add something that to, to, to what Irv said, because I think it is a powerful point that anybody could participate. And I think that's what made that's one of the things that makes hip hop so appealing to people, whether you're white, black, you know, tall, short, it just really appeals to the masses because even if you can't rap or you can't sing or you can't make a beat or you can't play an instrument, you could dance, right? Breakdancing was a pretty prominent piece of 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 hip hop culture that allowed the masses to participate and I think it made it a very enjoyable experience and was able to uh, bring people into the whole hip-hop sphere. And uh, Professor Joyner, or Irv does not know this, but um, in the course that I teach at Central, the Hip-Hop Law and Social Justice course, there, and I'm sure we'll get to more of that about that later in our discussion, but there is one component of the course where I spend a day discussing the intersection between the civil rights generation or the leaders of the civil rights generation and the leaders of the hip-hop generation and hip-hop culture. And um, one of the things I always harken back to is uh, I can't remember if it was around the time of, I think it was Genesis 6, and um, we had a group of students, and they were running around the school, and they were talking about getting involved, and uh, they were in pr- one of Professor Joyner's classes, and if you if you haven't had the t- opportunity to take him, you have to take him, because he is very um, 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 Socratic and sarcastic, <laughs> and the students were talking about what they wanted to do, um, and talking about the travesty. And he said, I don't know why you guys are telling me because you're not going to do anything. And I think, one, he said that to push them to do something, right? And my take, and Professor Joyner is here so he can speak for himself, but my my other take was it highlighted something that we talk about in, in the class, which is, is there a tension that exists between the leaders of our civil rights generation and this new hip hop culture? And so that's one of the things that we have an opportunity to explore in the classroom. And I think that there are some wonderful parallels. I think that there are amazing lessons that can be extrapolated just from the relationship between these two groups, the civil rights generation um, and the hip hop generation. If you think about Professor Joyner's generation as a leader in the civil rights movement, it was about activism, but activism was very active, right? It was you are going to sit in, 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 um, 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 sort of protest in front of this particular facility, right, or against this particular issue, or we're going to mobilize, we're going to march. The way that you engaged in activism was something that you can identify almost in a tangible sense, right? And for many, for 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 the new generation, it was very challenging because I think in some ways they felt hip-hop generation didn't believe that there was there wasn't a bull connor that you can point to and say i'm going to march against bull connor right the the racism and discrimination was much more covert so i think it made it more difficult to mobilize and so you didn't see that right but what has started to happen more recently is social media and i always talk about how the hip-hop generation has used social media in a way that is extremely dynamic and if you could think about all of the robust and amazing change that has been facilitated because of people from this culture or just the modern generation's use of use of social media and it's just a really amazing discussion and so i i just kind of wanted to start with just throwing that out there and we can explore that more this is your show so you run it (laughs) well you know this whole notion of the tension between the civil rights leaders and the um, leaders in in hip-hop 
I'd like to flesh that out a little bit more. And so when we think about what was going on during the, you know, the 70s, uh, and it was, of course, after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And you're right. You, we didn't have some of the um, clearly identified uh, individuals that you could point to. Was there a frustration on the part of young people during that time period where this where the racism that they were experiencing was uh, much more systemic mm -hmm. as opposed to being able to identify a particular person? Yeah, I, I definitely think you're you're absolutely right about that, and I think that 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 led that led to the frustration, right? And I think that that frustration also led to an inability to effectively combat it initially, because it was very hard to identify where it originated. And I and I think that um, one of the best examples that I give in class, um, uh, Professor Joyner set, set the stage very well when he used Martin Luther King. And there's a story that I tell my students. We talk about well. How do you define racism? Right. So if you think about the 60s, racism was defined by what I call them, the article that I'm writing is Bull Connor racism. Right. Which is this idea that racism was sicking dogs on protesters, utilizing water hoses, beating. It was very brutal. Racism was synonymous with brutalization. Right. And so that because racism was so brutal, that's if you think about that, that was to a large extent why Martin Luther King was very successful in the South, because you can show this and people could say whether you're white or black there's something wrong with this right it's too brutal there's a story and i and i sort of um compare that to a guy named lori pritchett lori pritchett was also um, a law enforcement officer in the south but lori pritchett was much more subtle right and so lori pritchett welcomed dr king in he worked with them back and forth um but L lori pritchett's racism was less um, aggressive. And so when, but when he knew that King was coming to protest, right, Lori Pritchett called some of the other jail facilities in the area and said, hey, will you be able to house these individuals if we arrest them? And the answer was yes, they did. It wasn't as aggressive. It was much more friendly. Right. And so the protesters came. And then, in fact, Lori Pritchett recognized every day that I have King in jail is another day that King can use the jail platform. Right. If you think about one of the most famous things that King wrote was a letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, there's a story about how um, when Dr. King was in jail, Lori, somehow somebody miraculously posted bond and Dr. King was out the next day. And the assumption is that Lori Pritchard actually just let him out and lied and said that someone posted bail because he didn't want King to have those mobilization efforts. He didn't want to give those amazing sound bites so that 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 he could be targeted. And so it was, it was very uh, creative and cunning. And so there are some some that believe that Lori Pritchard was able to defeat king in, in some ways i think that's debatable but i definitely think that he utilized a really interesting and dynamic strategy and i, I sort of get juxtapose that with if you think about the way that racism operates now right we know that maybe some of the things that pritchard was did at that particular time were designed to sort of perpetuate a racist agenda but it was more it was more covert. Right. It was more shielded. And that's when we started talking about sort of this um, civil rights movement and the hip hop generation. And it, there's another piece that 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 mixes in here as well, is that uh, what I found in my hip hop law and social justice course through that story, 
it's the first time that I really get some students to understand the value of critical race theory, right? Because critical race theory was this idea that racism isn't is, is, is systemic, as you were mentioning, and we need to create new legal models and mechanisms um, in order to, 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 to combat it because it's not as overt and in your face. And so uh, one of the articles that we read in the class compares the um, individuals in hip hop to their contemporaries from the critical race theory movement. And it's through that comparison because they can identify with the hip hop artists. They can have a much greater appreciation for someone like Derek Bell. So it's a comparison between um, uh, Derek Bell and Public Enemy, right? And it's it just the, the overlap because if they can appreciate Public Enemy, they can appreciate the influence that Derek Bell had in his critical race theory, leader as a leader of the critical race theory movement. Okay, this is uh, the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking about uh, hip-hop this evening, and uh, we have uh, Professor Todd Clark from the North Carolina Central University School of Law who teaches a course uh, in that, Uh, and we're going to continue this uh, discussion, but we're going to take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, uh, continue our conversation with uh, Professor Clark. We'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking with our colleague, Professor Todd Clark, who teaches a hip-hop law and social justice class, among other classes, at the law school. And we've been talking about hip-hop and the law this hour. Um, so, Todd, we've been talking about the, the tension between the leaders of the civil rights movement and those who are labeled, uh, you know, the hip-hop generation. And so who is in the hip-hop generation? Because as I mentioned, you know, I remember when Rapper's Delight came out. I was I was 13, uh, to give away my age. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, but I don't know if I would be considered within the hip-hop generation. I was a teenager when it started. But there are young people, uh, I think you probably fit in this category, 
who really grew up with hip hop from a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. So when we say the hip hop generation, which which group are we talking about? You know, that's a that's a really dynamic question. And it's it's one that I spend a lot of time discussing um, with with our students. So there's the, the thing that's interesting to me is when I was growing up, Everybody knew about the Source magazine. It was like the modern version of World Star or Media Takeout. I mean, every day I went to the grocery store, I wanted to pick up the newest edition of the Source magazine. So I wanted to see what the newest album, the newest album that was released, how many mics that album received. Right. That was a big portion of the Source where there was a person that was a former editor of the Source magazine. And I hope I hope I do not butcher his name, but his name is Bakari Katwana. And um, he defined the hip hop generation as those persons born between 1965 and 1984. And when he said those persons, his comment was African-Americans born between 1965 and 1984. Now, that's a very interesting definition of hip hop because that excludes anybody that is not African-American. And as Professor Joyner said, um, and actually, as you said earlier about what it's one of the, the largest or fastest growing genres or the probably the largest selling genre in all of music today, which means that it encompasses more or people more than just African-Americans listen to it. So what is it? So maybe in sort of a recalibration of that question might be, well, if if Bakari Kotwana's definition is the definition that we accept, because it's the one that I've most widely seen um, advance at the time, he would have known that there were whites that or people from other races that had participated in hip hop that made hip hop music. Right. You would have had the Beastie Boys. You would have had Eminem. He's familiar with those individuals, but yet he didn't include them. So I always have a discussion with the students about why he didn't. And that's always a fun, a fun discussion. And I think the 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 discussion focuses on the fact that hip hop grew out of and developed in the black community. And so many amazing things that have been developed and grew out of the black community have been misappropriated. And so he wanted to make it very clear that this is ours and this is who the generation encompasses. I don't know that my definition of of the hip hop generation would be as restrictive because I think that there are other people that are. Um, that support the music and the culture that um, extend beyond um, African-Americans. And I think that go beyond 1984. Right. And so I think that um, it's it's one of those things where I think that it's more than the, so the hip hop generation is more than just someone that just that listens to the music. I think it's a person that embraces the culture, some of the symbolism that we see, some of the messages and has a deeply rooted appreciation for that. And so I don't know that the defin I would not consider the definition to be as restricted as Bakari Katwana. Well, you know, the uh, uh, as I talked about the beginning of this thing, you know, it was very politicized mm-hmm. uh, when we. Uh, talk about uh, uh, Amiri Baraka, uh, and then I'm reminded of Gil Scott Heron, who uh, is called the, the grandfather of uh, of, uh, of hip hop. But uh, as you as you move uh, through the early uh, history, you're coming up with uh, N.W.A. Mm-hmm. You know, out of California, which is another urban uh, area and early uh, ur- uh, urban. Uh, 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 manifestation of this, and then you have on the East Coast a uh, whole different uh, side, as evidenced by Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tupac came out of uh, New York, uh, and his uh, uh, stepfather 
uh, was a member of the Black Liberation Army uh, and grew up in that kind of politicized community where they were a part of the Black Liberation Army, the Black Panther mm-hmm. Party. Uh, Afina Shakur, his mother, who is from, uh, from North Carolina. Uh, but out of all of that came uh, Tupac and his version of, uh, of hip-hop. And then there was even this conflict between the mm-hmm. East Coast and the, uh, and, and the West Coast. But at that time, uh, much of it was political messaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it got expanded to become a part of the uh, uh, emerging rebellion of the uh, of the streets, and and I think that at that point there was then uh, 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 a pushback that occurred because the rebellion from the streets took on a whole different atmosphere mm-hmm. and began to talk about things that uh, were not necessarily uh, political mm-hmm. uh, and broaden it uh, significant. The beat was there and there was a refining of, of all of the, uh, the musical attributes uh, of it. But the message changed and it got and so a lot of the, the, the conflict between people in the civil rights movement, came from uh, a lot of the, what was, I mean, people talk about the negativism mm-hmm. of, the, mm-hmm. uh, of, of rap and uh, where it went uh, in the uh, movement, uh, demeaning uh, women. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Dolores Tucker, uh, you know, had this whole movement yes. directed toward that. And even uh, Al Gore's wife, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, started this movement uh, to try to uh, uh, undercut uh, but it, the beat was always the thing. And for African-Americans, the beat has always been the essence of mm-hmm. our existence, you know, in terms of how we walk, how we talk, how we do uh, everything. You know, the, the beat uh, is there. And that uh, kind of captured uh, people and uh, moved them into where they weren't necessarily listening to the words, but they were reacting to the beat and to the music and to the uh, the, the rhythm of, 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 of the sound. Uh, but it's kind of broadened itself out such that now it's something, and I think there, there is a movement to kind of bring back some of the political messaging as a part of the uh, hip-hop uh, sound. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that you're, when, when uh, there's another component that I, I definitely th- can't, um, we, we definitely can't uh, eliminate, which is if you think about corporate America, right? Corporate America, at first, these were just some black kids in the neighborhood that wanted to dance on the street. But when corporate America realized that there was big money to be made from they the black kids, they jumped on it. And that's where the problem also came about, because I don't think that the I, I don't personally, because I like a lot of underground music. I don't know that the number or the amount of conscious or political rep has declined, right? I think it's probably remained fairly constant since its inception. But I think what has happened is that because of the influence of corporate America, corporate America was able to set the agenda for hip hop. This is what will be played on the radio because the idea is that people would rather listen to and hear about blacks, um, misogynistic messages about women, about gun violence and about harming and about those are the things that sell. And so that's what we're going to exploit. And it's always funny is that oftentimes you will hear these rappers and you will hear the the songs that get the radio play. But then there are other songs. And I remember 
uh, probably a few years ago when I taught my hip hop law and social justice course, we were having a discussion about um, misogyny and hip hop. And um, one, we were having a conversation about uh, Nicki Minaj. And then when the when the when the conversation began, it was all overwhelmingly negative. But then I push them in some ways and then they're like, oh, my God, Nicki Minaj is legendary. She's she's a social activist. Right. So there's this they kind of move back and forth based upon this nature of this discussion. But there's a one of the students had a daughter who had heard us in the class. And she was like, uh, asked her mom, mom, do you think you could ask if Professor Clark would allow me to sit in on the class? And I said, Absolutely. Right. And so the, she was probably about 14 or 15 and we were talking about Nicki Minaj. And then she actually played for us a positive song by Nicki Minaj that had an amazing message. I don't remember the name of the song, but it's interesting that our songs like Anaconda get more attention than maybe some of the things that she pr produces that are socially conscious. And how does that happen? That's when corporate America got in, got involved in the music and had an ability to just to distort the message. And I think to a large extent. Extent, that's why you see so many rappers now creating this image, right? And it's not even consistent with who they are. Like you see pictures of them when they were young people, and then you see who they are, and you're like, wait a minute, that that's not congruent. That that wasn't you. You didn't live that lifestyle. You grew up in the suburbs, right? But it's the the corporate America has dictated this 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 image that if you're African American, you have to have this bravado that you want to. Um, treat women inappropriately and you want to engage in violence. And and, and I think that that had a, a big role in it, too. So I don't know that it was just so much that the rap said this is the direction we're going to go in because we believe it to be the right direction. But I think it was almost to some extent a pursuit of money. But then that also creates another another issue, which is if you think about Dr. Dre and some of his early lyrics, and I believe he might have been hip hop's first black billionaire when he had the deal with Apple. And if not, he's very close. If you think about Jay-Z, he's very close to that level as well. Sean Combs. So then you have to ask yourself, like these individuals are doing very positive things for the black community now. Right. But for a long time, they engaged in and created many of the lyrics that Professor Joyner mentioned that caused some of the tension. But then we're creating millionaires and billionaires through this genre. So, yeah. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah. And, and Dr. Dre out of the N.W.A. Yeah. Out of N.W.A. Know, out, exactly. Out of N.W.A. Ice Cube. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know uh, the the um, the the notion I mean, if you follow the, the, the history and, and, and the way that it developed, it was, it became exploitive, mm -hmm. you know. And, and clearly, uh, once the uh, corporate greed uh, set in, uh, then it propelled it. Because now you go out, I, I ride through my community now, and when I hear the, the radio turned up and all this hip-hop music, I turn around and I'm white kids. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that's listening uh, to it uh, where there is heavy use of the N word, mm -hmm. you know, which they they seem to uh, to love. Uh, but that certainly started back with uh, N.W.A., you mm -hmm. know, and uh, they were uh, uh, at the top mm -hmm. uh, of the uh, of the scale. Everybody wanted to hear even the police right. uh, as they uh, <laughs> came in to uh, take revenge against them for their uh, uh, number one uh, record mm -hmm. uh, at, at the, the uh, at, at at, at the time, uh, but then they calmed down and mm -hmm. they became establishment, and then this, this this younger generation then took it over and 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 moved it into. And, but again, it was free. 
because there were no rules uh, to it. It was a, the Motown sound where you had to uh, address a specific kind of audience and a specific kind of form. You could just do your own thing. I think mm-hmm. I, that, that's where James Brown came in, with do your, do your own thing. Uh, so it, it, it was interesting in terms of the ability to, to, to explode in the uh, community and perform, uh, provide an outlet uh, for people who otherwise would not have been able to uh, use that creativity, in many instances, a creativity that they didn't even know they had mm-hmm. until they began to, uh, uh, to, 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 to to nourish it, to massage it, and to make it into uh, something other than what, uh, than what it was. So, uh, but, you know, that's, I'm, 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 I just keep getting inspired as I reflect now on some of this stuff. Yeah, and I think I think it does highlight just that that there are there is a substantial connection between the generations and so while I did mention that there's a tension, I start that off. That's how I start the class off, but we spend more time talking about the the parallels between the, ju- the b- 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 between the generations and in fact, um, one of the things that I mentioned while we were off air is the comment uh, or the the notion of if you think about groups like Outkast, right? When they came out with their famous song Rosa Parks, right? Mm-hmm. There are some kids that may not have even heard that term, but they hear it in an outcast song that makes them want to look it up. And then her story continues to live. And I think that you see now a lot of hip hop artists use imagery from the civil rights movement in order to perpetuate certain messages or they reference certain people. And I think it keeps those ideas alive. I think to a large extent they were influenced because the hip hop generation is were essentially the children of the civil rights generation. And I'll, I'll tell you another story um about about my class and um i think again professor Jordan, you were again this was one we were having a conversation about you again and um <laughs> see Jordan doesn't know i talk about him all the time but you have such a, a, a powerful presence within the community and the law school and it is definitely greatly appreciated um, but there was a, a a young lady. We're in the class, and uh, so this is a distance education course. So the students are taking it synchronously. So they're live, and I can see them. They can see me. Probably like 50, twenty to twenty-five students. Um, and there was a student. Her dad had heard her in the class and heard our discussion about civil rights, and he was like, "You know, Professor Clark, can 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 I talk for a little bit?" Right? We were talking about this tension. And um, he said, hearing this discussion makes me think about why we have why why the hip hop generation um, views its views the world the way that it does. He said, um, I was a member of the civil rights movement, and he said, um, as a member of the civil rights movement, we were constantly taught, we were constantly told, and we were con- constantly conditioned to try to make things better for our community, right? We were marching together, right? Mm-hmm. We were singing together. We were writing, not writing, but we were sort of um, um, picketing together. We were together, right? It was advancing a group of individuals forward. However, once we got home from those marches and we sat down with little Johnny and little Tyrone, right? And little Sheila, what we told them about is we need you to go to school and get a degree because you are special. You, you, you. And I was like, wow, that's a really powerful point because this idea of the collective sort of got lost because it was this idea that education, right, 
and um, earning, learning a trade can take you to the next level and sort of change the social climate and give you not only political capital, but economic capital. Right. And I'm sure some like uh, Professor Dawson's a wonderful mother and we always talk about her children and her children are absolute superstars. Right. But the idea is like the parents were trying to create all of these systems for our kids to be successful and so, protect them and protect them all of the harm, all the harm. Right. And when that happens, we've sort of shifted it from a collective to an individual. And it, it reminds me, I was in a barber shop one day and that's where all of the conversation occurs. Right. All the magic occurs in the barber shop. And we were talking about Michael Jordan. And, and, and I said, you know, growing up, I loved Michael Jordan. And as a as a as a man. Um, I realized that there are some things that I would have liked to see, have seen more from Michael, right? And someone in the barbershop had made this comment. So what? Why does that matter? Michael was, only needs to be concerned about himself. The heck with everybody else. The heck with those. He's got to get his money. And it just, and I'm like, wait a minute, man, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? This this is a man that's part of a community. And there's certain obligations that you have as a black man because all of our destinies are inextricably intertwined. And the person just couldn't get that message. And I spent some more time and I have to keep going by there to kind of help them appreciate that. But I think that that is essentially sort of the offshot of what you see. And I I can't say that it's a wrong philosophy. Right. But I but I definitely think it's it's inconsistent with the way that I would say, Professor Joyner, you and your peers would have would have viewed the world. What, what do you I guess my question is, how would you respond to to, to that assessment? Well, I, I, that's that's the point. I mean, there, there was an effort, and I think this was one of the uh, failures of, uh, of, of 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 my generation uh, to make life so easy uh, for our children uh, that they didn't have to think about mm-hmm. or encounter uh, the kind of harsh reality that uh, we encountered, or the same world that uh, we uh, that we dealt with as we were. Uh, coming up, and uh, so a lot of people got shielded away uh, from that. And there was this this movement because earlier, you, you, you know, you're talking about education would have been focused on uh, HBCU mm-hmm. uh, in terms of higher education, but at this stage, we were going into uh, PWIs mm-hmm. uh, where uh, now people were trying to get in. Uh, but this is the Legal Eagle Review, and we're talking about uh, hip hop and the uh, growth and development of hip-hop with uh, Professor Todd Clark. Uh, And we're going to take a break uh, right now. I want you to uh, uh, catch your breath, uh, grab a uh, quick uh, soda or something, and we'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to 
childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Todd Clark, who is one of our colleagues at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this hour we have been talking about hip hop and the law. So during the last segment, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the differences between the civil rights movement kind of generation and the hip hop generation. And I wonder if there's, you know, kind of a new generation as well. So a new hip hop generation, because, Todd, based on uh, the um, one definition, I would actually be included. And, in, you know, so people between the ages of 55 mm-hmm. Um, and 35, roughly, would be the hip-hop generation. But I think about my kids and, yep. and their consumption of hip-hop music. And while there did seem to be a time period where um, hip-hop was uh, had kind of been co-opted by, you mm-hmm. know, the white corporate uh, machine, yep. that there seems to be kind of a, a, a shift now. And we're seeing hip-hop and hip-hop artists who are really focusing on social justice issues, mm-hmm re-emerging and the the young people that are listening to hip-hop today are are consuming a lot of that um that music so I, I just wanted to get your thought on on the young people so those who are between the ages of say 34 and you know 20 for example right. they're they're starting to enter you know college the workforce um what is your perspective of their view of kind of society and social justice issues based on their consumption of hip hop as it exists today yeah i think th- i think that's a wonderful question and i think that um what has happened is i think that there is a space for the socially conscious music, right? Like you mentioned Childish Gambino, right? Childish Gambino is a very socially conscious rapper, very talented guy, and I think he's been able to sort of generate a pretty substantial following. Um, you also have people like North Carolina's own J. J. Cole. Like, he's a very phenomenal rapper. He talks about socially conscious in- issues. Kendrick Lamar, another really dynamic individual that um, focuses on this idea of social justice. And, you know... So I think that that is alive, and the, even even one, when I when I teach the course, one of the things that I talk about is I, I sort of think about um, if you think about Malcolm X, right, and you think about his transition, right. So if you think about who he was as a young child, right, and then as he sort of as an early adult, the types of activities in which he engaged, and then if you think about sort of his 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 transition. To, to the nation of Islam, and then you think about 
then you think about his pilgrimage and how he came back a completely different person, right? And he sort of believed he had this higher sense of enlightenment after going through all of these things and taking that pilgrimage, right? He was more inclusive. He just saw the world differently. The thing that, hap that happened that allowed for that was time. And so when you think about hip hop at its hip hop is a fairly young genre, right? And so I think that even when we mentioned the Dr. Dre's and the Jay-Z's, they would have initially had a certain perception and a certain um, ideology about the world, but they're grown men now, right? They're fathers. And so now we see those early leaders in the hip hop generation, they are growing up. And so in growing up, they have the ability to impart some knowledge to the J. Coles, to the Kendrick Lamars, and sort of empower them in a way and support them in a way to help them perpetuate their message in order to, dis to make it cool to be a social justice advocate. And I think that that is, to me, that's something that's extremely um, important if you think about just the growth and maturity that a person is able to, to experience in their lifetime. And if we just think about hip hop on that same continuum, it's still growing. Now, going back to your other question about the hip hop generation, I think it might even be important to say the second edition of the hip-hop generation and maybe not even classified as one because I do think there are some differences in sort of in culture and time and and in and, and some other um, concepts that maybe separate the generations in some ways but there is this underlying passion for the music and the culture. Yeah well it seems like that the uh, you had this political messaging I think that started us out uh, then uh, it turned into anger mm -hmm. you know the anger yeah. of the uh, of the street, because I always used to ask the question: Is there a, a hip hop love song? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. Do you have a Barry White? You know, or a Teddy Pendergrass? Teddy Pendergrass yeah. You know, in the uh, in in the hip hop uh, genre. And uh, now we're kind of moving back to more message uh, kinds of things, but that is typically from the older hip hop artists rather than the the, uh, the younger ones and as they mature then you know you kind mm -hmm. of get a little more uh, seasoned yep. uh, in, into the uh, into the music what has been the impact though of hip-hop on these PWIs and I think that's one of the because you talked about uh, the uh, masquerading mm -hmm. that the hip-hop artists engaged in mm -hmm. uh, where they had to have this uh, gangster mm -hmm. uh, mantra uh, around them and the videos are always gangsterism and uh, hucksterism right. uh, kind of uh, but but and, and I always thought that was a way to ingratiate themselves into what the white establishment wanted to see mm -hmm. from that community so that they would buy right. uh, the, uh, buy, buy the music. And a lot of that uh, has been displayed on the predominantly white campuses. Uh, now, obviously, HBCU as well, because we have here at North Carolina Central uh, a kind of center mm -hmm. uh, for uh, hip hop and it's taught. Uh, and dissected uh, here. But what, what's your take on, on that? Yeah, you know, I think that with respect to the, the, the uh, PWR, the predominantly white institutions, I definitely think that hip-hop has had an impact um, on the student bodies that make up those campuses. Um, I think that it's hip-hop is not just a part of black culture anymore. It's American culture, right? I mean, even if you see one of the one of the hotter topics now is the, what is the game, Fortnite that the kids are playing, mm -hmm. and then there are certain dance moves that originated in the, in the hip-hop community that now you see 
um, um, depicted in the video game and then you have intellectual property issues, right? So I think that, you know, hip hop transcends just black culture. It is truly American culture, which I think is amazing. I mean, at, there was a time when you would, uh, you would, you, at, at, there was a time when you would just sort of walk into or walk into, let's say, a predominantly white nightclub and you would very rarely hear any hip hop music. Now, any club in America, probably 60 to 70 percent of the music that will be played, even in a mixed or all white club, is going to be hip hop music. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's so I definitely think that it has an influence and in in an impact. In some ways, I could even say that I think it does. It has music in general has the ability to bring people together. And I think that in some ways it's giving people um, an appreciation for the experiences that other people have in the world. And I, I, I give you an example um, in the hip hop law and social justice course um, that um, I taught or that I teach, we um, were playing a particular song and the song was talking about it. It was glorifying this concept of guns. And so we started talking about gun violence. And um, one of the students, um, we, we, there was a, a female student who said she has a son, and she said um, with, that, with that particular son, the son wanted to go outside and play with his water gun, okay? And the mom said, no, you can't do that. Like, no, don't go out. It's like, why, mommy? It's just a water gun. And the, um, um, the mom says, well, you know, because of the social climate, because of the conditions in America today, because in the color of your skin, it could be misperceived and we don't I don't want anything to, ha to hurt you. And there was a white student in the class and the white student said was blown away. She was like, I would never, ever think to tell my child that my child cannot play with a water gun because of the social conditions. And I think that when you talk about what is hip hop have the capacity or what can it do i think it brings people together i think it could be a form for people to have um deep conversations about racial issues and i think that it can oftentimes give perspective so i think that there is a value of the music because it's almost like i think that for some in the pwi when they hear certain rappers or certain artists that gives them a certain level of comfort right and so they're like opening their door to this culture so they can hear things and through that information i think that it allows for additional conversation so i think hip-hop has done a great job at that and I think, you know, in kind of uh, when you were talking just now, what I thought about was Ava DuVernay's The 13th. And I, and I do think that this kind of goes to your point, which is if you've been listening to hip hop and you've been mm -hmm. listening to those messages, and even if you're not a member of, you know, the community identified African-American community, it does lay the foundation so that watching a documentary about mass incarceration, it, it just, I think, helps to provide a foundation and maybe even more of an openness to receive the message of that documentary. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a, a well-taken um, point. I did want to ask you about, um, so the hip-hop generation lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. is there is there a change in those of us who are lawyers who are advocating because of our because of being in the hip hop you know kind of generation and you squarely are in I'm yep. just barely in it Irv I think you missed that that mark <laughs> um, 
Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so what what is your thought about about that those who advocate those who are lawyers who are, are members of this hip hop generation? You know, I th- I think that's a wonderful question, and I think that I could say for for me as a as a as a lawyer that is substantially influenced and a professor that's substantially influenced by the music. One of the things that it has done for me is it gives me, especially teaching at an HBCU, it gives me another medium by which or through which I can communicate with my students. Sometimes if I have a really complex contract issue or corporations issue, I can say this is nothing but this, right? If we're talking about in, in class, we were talking about what is a hostile takeover expert and what is a green meller. And, and so I was able to relate that to a person in the hood that flips that flips houses, right? And so I was able to, to, to sort of take these complex concepts and speak to students in a way through a language through which they can understand. I also think that it's important to me to utilize that particular language as a medium to communicate with my students because I think it gives their experience validation. I think when you walk into a classroom and you have a professor and you hear that your professor has an appreciation for the things that are important to you, I think that makes the student feel special. I think it makes the student feel included and feel as though they have an ability to make a difference in the world. And they can be who they are. They don't have to sacrifice that part of themselves. I mean, I always have students that talk about where they came from um, and and then how they feel that they don't want to leave those individuals behind, but yet they know that there are certain things that they have to do. And I think through using that as a medium, I think I can kind of show them they can, they can still, they can do both. Um, so that's important to me. So you mentioned um, contracts mm-hmm. issues and you've mentioned corporate justice and we've talked about kind of the, the um, co-opting of uh, the, the money aspect of hip hop. What about representation? And mm-hmm. so this is a billion dollar industry uh, <laughs> when we think about agents, when we think about attorneys who mm-hmm. represent um, the hip hop artists. Is there diversity? And if not, what's the solution to that? There's a lot of money, you know, and mm-hmm. the majority of the money is not going to uh, black and brown people. Yeah, you're right. And I think that, you know, one of my first articles was really about that. And it was about how you have African-American athletes, right, who are often members of the hip hop generation. They very rarely select agents that look like them. And if you start to look at the statistics overall, I mean, there's an overwhelming majority of the first round draft picks are going to be people of color. But very few African-Americans represent those athletes. And I do think that that is a it's a it's a major concern. And I think that, um, you know, with some of the and, and so I'll speak about a little bit about one thing that Jay-Z is doing, but I think um, that's a major concern. And I think it goes back to this story um, and, and, and allegedly. Right. This is the alleged story where there was um, there was a guy on that grew up on, let's say, one side of New York. And then allegedly Malcolm X saw him on the other side of New York. was like, hey, man, what are you doing over here? He's like, I'm over here. Get some ice. And Malcolm X was like, well, you could get ice on the east side, too. And the uh, allegedly the black guy says everybody knows that the white man's ice is colder right so you know and 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 i think that there's always this perception even in our black communities that whiteness is somehow inherently better than blackness and it one of the things that agitates me the most is that sometimes in these hip-hop music uh, in in the hip-hop music you hear they always say well i you know all my neighbors are white okay well 
what the heck does that mean? And I think that what they're insinuating is that I live in a nice neighborhood, right? Or I got a, I have a Jewish lawyer, which is suggesting that I have a white lawyer, and that somehow makes it better, that you have better representation. I think that hip-hop continues to be burdened by the shackles of slavery, and I think that that continues to perpetuate, perpetuate in our communities. And I do that, that think that that's something that has to be um, addressed. It's like... Uh, you know, the the Clark Dahl experiment that was used in the Brown versus Board of Education case. I mean, they they consistently do that that study. And it still turns out that the little girl thinks that Same the thing. white doll. Is, and this is this is 2019. Right. Yeah. So I still think we have this conception. I do will say transitioning back to my comment about Jay-Z. Um, recently, Jay-Z had an intellectual property dispute issue, and they were trying to find some arbitrators to to work on this issue. And what he realized was that there was very little diversity among the arbitrators. So he's making this really big push. But I think it's, again, it's about that experience, right? And sort of as you grow, you recognize all of the things that hip-hop can be. If you think about hip-hop was able to have a major impact in electing the first black president. That was an amazing accomplishment. So I think that um, I think that those are the types of things that um, that it has the power to do. Well, what what happened? I, I think kind of like uh, jazz uh, and other uh, African American forms of uh, music. It started out as being uh, a show of creativity, mm-hmm. uh, a way to uh, express uh, yourself, and uh, wherever you could express yourself, uh, you did until you got to the point that uh, you started making money mm-hmm. uh, doing that. And then you wanted to save the money, but you had already got all these songs out there unprotected that if somebody could just come in and uh, grab mm-hmm. and make it their own. So Jay-Z is now in a part where he is protecting his Protect. property interests mm-hmm. rather than at the beginning of his process of being uh, a creative artist mm-hmm. uh, where he's trying to get uh, a, a message out. And I think that eventually they all morph into uh, that uh, protectionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the younger people that's trying to uh, work through uh, and become become known and put have a product out there because uh, just kind of like TLC, mm-hmm. you know, the first oh, thing man. they just want to hear, they just want to hear themselves on the radio. And it wasn't until later uh, that they realized that somebody was making money off of their words uh, on the uh, on the radio. That's so, an amazing story because I, I think I read I read somewhere or listened to their interview where they said they were making the equivalent of fifty thousand dollars per year when that song Waterfalls or whatever it was called was just all over the radio and with so multi platinum. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, this was a great discussion, and unfortunately, we're we're out of time. Well, I, let me just take a minute, real quick, and Todd, real quick list for for those who might not be in the hip hop generation couple of artists that we all should be familiar with, old and new. So I would say old, you never can go wrong with Tupac. I mean, because his music was just a staple of, of, of hip-hop. He's a legend and then Notorious Big. Not necessarily from the political or social consciousness, but just in terms of his ability to put together an amazing song and the flow of his words. I would say on the positive side, you have people like Kendrick Lamar. And I'm going to give you a, a, a newer one who I think, in my opinion, um, the is the, he has a song in my opinion that's equivalent to um, um, Childish Gambino's "This Is Not America," but the guy's by his name is Lamarcus Joyner, and he has a song called "I Am Not a Racist." And if you have not watched, sounds it, like my cousin. Oh yeah, you 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 gotta watch it. Now, I'll just tell you when you start off watching it, you're going to be offended and appalled, but you gotta let it play out. But it is 
absolutely wonderful. And then we'll have to talk about it. So I want both of you guys to watch, and then I'm going to catch you in the hallways and see what you think. <laughs> okay. All right. Challenge accepted. All right. Hopefully uh, you have enjoyed this show as much as we have. Thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us. Uh, and thank you, Professor Todd Clark, for spending your time with us out of your busy schedule. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. Mm-hmm.